the next space-based telescope, and what's at the edge of our solar system. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The James Webb Space Telescope is nearing the finish line, with a campaign of full systems tests on the horizon. The Mega Space Based Telescope is an incredible machine, with a sun shield that, once deployed in space, will be the size of a tennis court. Once it's operational, the telescope will give scientists an unprecedented view of the infrared universe. But getting there has been a challenge, with the telescope's complexity adding to the delays in developing and building it, and the coronavirus pandemic further slowing down the project. We'll chat with Gregory Robinson. He's the program manager for the James Webb Space Telescope about what's ahead for the observatory and how NASA plans to get it into space. Then, what's at the edge of our solar system? We'll speak with our panel of experts on this week's I'd Like to Know segment, Exploring the Kuiper Belt. That's just ahead, but first let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. NASA's Kate Rubens is heading to the International Space Station. The agency announced her assignment in the upcoming Expedition 6364 mission, hitching a ride to the station on a Russian Soyuz spacecraft. This will be Rubin's second mission on the station, conducting medical research carried over from her first stint on the ISS. The launch is scheduled for mid-October. And this could very well be the last time NASA pays the Russian space agency for a ride to the station after commercial partner SpaceX successfully transported two astronauts to the station last month. Stay up to date with the latest space headlines. Visit WMFE.org slash space or follow me on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope promises to see farther into our universe than ever before, uncovering unseen phenomena in our universe in the infrared. But before it can do that, engineers have to build it and launch it into space. Doing that on the scale of James Webb is no easy feat. The telescope will have a giant sun shield to keep it cool, almost the size of a tennis court once unfurled, and huge mirrors to direct light towards its sensors. The program has faced delays due to technical challenges and now COVID, but work is ramping back up ahead of a possible launch as early as next year. To talk more about what's ahead and why this is so hard, we're joined by Gregory Robinson. He's the program manager for the James Webb Space Telescope. Gregory, thanks for speaking with us. Glad to be here. So the James Webb Space Telescope work is ramping up as uh, you're getting closer and closer to the finish line on this this telescope. Uh, What kind of work and testing is happening right now? I mentioned just before uh, the COVID virus uh, slowed us down a bit. Uh, we were moving pretty quickly uh, towards environmental testing. So where we are now, uh, we've uh, what we call stowed the the UPSs, the the sun shields, and in, in their launch uh, configuration. Uh, we've deployed the uh, the huge uh, what we call the deployable tower assembly. That's the telescope and the instrument package, uh, as they will be uh, on orbit. And we have a, a significant test coming up in a in a few weeks. And that's called the comprehensive system test. And that's where we ring out the entire observatory for the first time. Uh, all the copper electrical paths, all of the software interactions with hardware, uh, commands uh, back and forth on the primary and, and secondary or, or redundant sides. 
Now, this testing has been done before at the spacecraft uh, level, uh, what we call the spacecraft element level, and that's the spacecraft bus and the sun shield, and of course, on the um, telescope and instrument side um, previously. But as an integrated observatory, this would be the first time, it's the fourth time total, but the first time at the observatory, and we call it CST-4. And we will have a CST-5 uh, later on. So after CST-4, we will do environmental testing, and that's to test uh, the ride uphill on the rocket, uh, simulating the noise inside the fairing, and the, uh, the what we call the shake, rattle, and roll, the vibration of the launch vehicle as well. So it'll go through acoustics testing for noise and sound vibe for vibration, and that's later this summer. And this is the first time we've done environments on the pull-up uh, integrated observatory. Mm -hmm. So that's later this summer. All of that's in the stowed configuration as it would launch. And we will deploy the sun shield uh, one more time. And that's a marvel to see. It's a tennis court size, as you know, with, with five uh, membrane layers. Um, so that will get deployed the last time. And, and then we will do a CST-5 and we'll, we'll pack it up and ship it uh, to South America. Gregory, this is a complicated machine um, in just its size and, and how, as you mentioned, how the sun shield has to unfold like that. Can you walk me through some of the engineering challenges you all have come across with, with uh, a machine so complex and so large as James Webb and, and how you've overcome some of those challenges? Okay, so, so I don't know if we have enough hours or days, um, <laughs> uh, but I'll just mention a couple. I, I talked about the sun shield. In order to keep the, the spacecraft observatory on one side warm and the other side very cold to look back, look out into uh, deep space, we had to come up with, with some way to separate the two environments, and the sun shield is the primary piece of that. And the technology, the membrane layers are extremely thin, like the hair on your head. Um, so that was a new technology. Of course, we did, did it in five layers, tennis court size, space just right. And of course, if you think of a tennis court and you think of a rocket fairing, there's no way you can put that and have that rocket fairing and launch it. Uh, so we had to come up with a way to turn that membrane, which was a new technology that's never been done before, into five layers, separate layers, integrate those together into a, an engineering system and be able to fold those up and deploy it autonomously on orbit. And every single component has to work. Uh, I think we have 107 um, actuators, non-explosive actuators that need to um, separate. And so again, 107, all of them have to do it on orbit. Uh, so we do a lot of qualification testing at that component level, at the membrane level, at the sun shield level, many, many hours. and of analysis uh, to make sure that this thing will work uh, when we need it to work. And that's why we've had multiple uh, deployments and fold-ups and deployments and fold-ups. We take it through environments to make sure that it is ready for the, for the launch environment and also for on-orbit operations in space. So that's one, that's, that's one of the biggest. Yeah, so I, I mentioned the, the sun shield, the new technology there, uh, 10, New technologies never been done before on web. Uh, the, the engineering challenges to get those new technologies once they're mature, 
uh, into a, a system and then an integrated system. And that's a huge challenge in addition to maturing uh, never done before technology. Uh, so the instruments uh, in that same boat, they, had, uh, they have numerous new technologies, uh, certainly detectors, uh, things like that. Uh, so, and getting all of this into an integrated system uh, is significant. The project has garnered some criticism from the U.S. Government Accountability Office report saying it's behind schedule and over budget um, and, and might not make launch dates. Um, obviously, coronavirus did not help with the scheduling, but now that things are kind of ramping up, how is how is the, the scheduling progressing and, and are you optimistic you'll make the, the launch date that, that you've set for yourself? As I mentioned earlier, the um, we do have we're back to two full shifts out at uh, Prime Contractor North of Grumman. Uh, we have the, the NASA team out there full time uh, as appropriate, depending on what's going on. Uh, so we think we, we will soon get back to uh, some level of efficiency that we were before, before the virus. Uh, whether that's 100% of where we were or not, we're not sure yet. So we need to give it a few weeks of runtime. Of course, we still have numerous protocols in place uh, on the NASA side and certainly uh, at the prime contract in North of Grumman. Uh, so that's going to have some, some level of efficiency impact, hopefully only a small amount. And Later this month and into next month, we're going to do a schedule risk assessment, uh, laying the schedule out against uh, the scope that's left uh, against the budget. And the agency will make a decision on, uh, on a launch date if we need to change it. And it's, it's trending that direction uh, sometime in July. And Gregory, can you just remind us what the current target launch date is? Current target launch date is March 30. 2021. So we're getting, getting close. Very close. Yeah. And and I know that there's a lot of astronomers down here that are very excited to see this thing fly. Um, you mentioned uh, some of the testing that's that's happening. Um, so there's, you know, the the systems testing. There's also the environmental testing, the the acoustics testing, the the, the shake testing. Um, what is what are some big major milestones that are that are still left, if any, um, for the development of, of this machine? Uh, so I mentioned a few earlier. So we, we have uh, the comprehensive uh, test uh, that's coming up in, in two or three weeks. Uh, that runs uh, 10 days, a couple of weeks long, where we ring out the entire system electrically, all of the copper, all of the uh, electrical paths, primary, secondary paths. Um, it's a software working with the right hardware, sending commands back and forth. So that's a major test. And then we go into the environmental testing that I mentioned earlier, later this summer. And we will do a, a final deployment after the environmental testing of the SunShield, do another comprehensive test, and a lot of deployments and, and closeouts. And we'll pack it and ship it. Uh, so uh, those are the big milestones, and there are numerous smaller milestones in between. What's the process of getting it ready for launch? You mentioned you pack and ship, so it gets packed into its fairing uh, here in the U.S. before it's shipped out to the launch site. What, what's that process like? Well, just a little bit on the uh, on the rocket. So the uh, one of our two partners, uh, Canadian Space Agency is a partner, and European Space Agency, ESA, uh, and Europe is another major partner. So ESA is providing the launch vehicle, which is an Ariane 5 from Ariane Spas. Their launch site is in South America at, at Peru, um, French Guyana. 
So we will put it in a, a shipping container, a flight qualified shipping container that has all the detectors for motion and um, strain gauges for vibration, things like that. It will be uh, it will be shipped uh, from Southern California, the Long Beach area, uh, down through the Panama Canal to to French Guiana, on a ship that's commonly used uh, for shipping. Uh, Spaceflight hardware uh, to South America. That's the process. Once it's there, the observatory itself goes through a certain amount of process, what we call processing, um, what we call green tag, red tag, uh, taking, uh, making sure something, certain things are ready for actual flight. Other things are armed for flight. Uh, we fuel it there. We put it inside the fairing. And then it's it's hoisted up on top of the rocket at the pad. And once it does launch, which I'm sure will be uh, a sigh of relief for you to see it uh, leave this planet, walk me through the first few weeks of James Webb Space Telescope in orbit. What is the process of getting the telescope ready for those observations? After launch, there's some deployments that need to happen pretty early in the flight. Uh, and of course, you want to get the antennas out so you can communicate uh, with the spacecraft. Uh, you need power, so the solar rays need to get deployed pretty early. And then we go through about a two-week, solid two-week uh, period of uh, many other deployments. Uh, we talked about the telescope itself, the sun shield. Uh, there are other um, uh, communication devices we have to deploy, uh, other thermal-type devices that support the sun shield uh, function. So numerous deployments over uh, a two-week period, maybe a little bit longer than that. Uh, the ride to Lagrange Point 2, the L2, is about a million miles. Uh, that's about a month long. And the first six months after launch is what we call commissioning. That means getting the, the observatory ready uh, for, for operations. Uh, so after these deployments, uh, we, we check out the instruments. We get the observatory uh, very cold where it should be and, and keep it warm on the other side. Uh, all of this is happening in that first six months. Uh, the instrument teams, uh, the PI teams, uh, scientists uh, start calibrating the instruments and, and getting them ready. And around the six month period uh, is when we actually go into operations and start releasing uh, data uh, to the public. With a launch potentially early next year, and then that six-month kind of ramp up while it's in space to get ready. I mean, there's still quite a bit of time before before this telescope is operational, but scientists down here on Earth are, are already chomping at the bit to use this thing. What is the process like uh, for scientists to, to get their proposals and, and use the observatory? I understand that that's happening now. What is that process like? So we've talked a lot about the uh, spacecraft contractor, uh, rightfully so. Uh, so the Space Telescope uh, Science Institute in Baltimore, uh, as part of Johns Hopkins, uh, they they develop the ground system and they, they will lead our mission operations. Uh, so the ground system is, is primarily done, uh, a few tweaks to, to make sure we get it just right. Uh, they're doing all the prep work for mission operations. And they also manage the proposal process. So what we call cycle one, proposals. Um, those were originally due in May, and due to corona, we, we've extended that, and we'll make some determination in July when those proposals will be due. And that's for the primarily for the first year of, of science on web. 
Um, and that's in addition to the early release science program and of the GTO, the Guaranteed Observatory Observation Program. All of that's managed out of uh, the Institute. And of course, you can go to the website and see how that's done and what's required to submit a proposal. And in addition to that, the Institute has done a, a lot of training uh, of the science community throughout the US, uh, Europe, Canada, Chile, Japan, and South Africa. And they have many uh, resources on their website uh, to extend that training uh, further. So the science teams are, are getting ready. Uh, again, some proposals are already selected uh, from the earlier two, and cycle one is coming up uh, pretty quick. And in that process, they, they talk about what science they're after, uh, the timing, how long they're gonna uh, stare and observe, uh, those types of things. Uh, and of course, you determine who's gonna go first and second, and you group uh, certain science observations, et cetera. Uh, Gregory, how long have you been working on this project? Just over two years, two and a quarter years. And has this been like anything else you've ever worked on before? Um, no. I often say web is not your average bear. It's, um, it's very large, very complex, a lot of reach. And the science is, is something that I can only imagine uh, what we're going to get back from web. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, great science from Hubble and Spitzer and even uh, some of the other missions like Kepler. Um, but Webb is going to be uh, better than all of those. And of course, it would add to what they've already produced. Uh, so in that, from that standpoint, just the, the science that we're expecting just blows my mind. Of course, the complexity, I talked about the the uh, new technologies, and we don't do new, new technologies just because we like doing it and trying it out. It was required to meet all the requirements on web. Uh, so that made it extremely complex. Uh, so I would say the, the only thing that's um, uh, more complex, uh, if you will, uh, for a lot of reasons that I've ever been involved with was I was not part of the development, and that was the space shuttle program. Um, that's probably the most complex I've ever done, but but web is um, it's in the same category. And finally, Gregory, um, you know you've been working on this project for two years. It's an extremely complex project, um, and so many people are so excited to see this launch and become operational. Uh, when will you breathe your sigh of relief and say uh, <laughs> mission accomplished? Well, uh, I will have multiple sighs. Uh, the first sigh is um, when I know the spacecraft is working just fine uh, at the launch site uh, as right before we put it in the fairing. Um, of course, after it separates from the rocket during the launch, and after that first two or so weeks when we get all the deployments out, that's when I will, I will have a huge sigh and really enjoy the next five months of uh, the commissioning process, watching the science teams and the mission ops teams do their thing and and not a big sigh, but a, but a huge cheer after the six months uh, when we start to get some, some of those images. A very exciting mission. Lots and lots of folks are, are rooting for you on this one. Uh, we've been speaking with Gregory Robinson. He's the James Webb Telescope Program Director. Gregory, thanks so much for speaking with us. Uh, thank you, Brenda. Still to come, what's at the edge of our solar system? A conversation with our panel of expert scientists on the Kuiper Belt. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. What's at the end of our solar system? 
For starters, a spacecraft named New Horizons. After flying by Pluto, the spacecraft is now exploring the Kuiper Belt. So what exactly is the Kuiper Belt, and what can we learn from it? We're joined by University of Central Florida scientists Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell to help explain the secrets at the edge of our solar system. Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. The Kuiper Belt's a region uh, of space in our solar system that is beyond the orbit of the planet Neptune that includes a large number of um, relatively small icy objects. So think cometary-like objects, but includes objects that are quite large. So Pluto is part of the Kuiper Belt and there are other objects as large as Pluto in the Kuiper Belt as well. So if you think of the asteroid belt as the rocky uh, debris field in between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. This is the sort of icy debris field beyond the orbit of Neptune. Can you give me a sense of scale? Like, okay, so Pluto is a Kuiper belt object, so that's how far out in the solar system it is. How big is it? How wide is it? Do we know that? It Roughly. extends from, say, 30 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, which is where Neptune is, out to maybe about 50 times. Uh, there are sort of different populations in the Kuiper belt that have different regions of space that they're in yeah and this is a uh, i mean it's also good to get a, an idea of the shape i mean it's 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 a uh, it's like a donut right so i mean just like most of the the are all planets in our solar system orbit in roughly the same plane well so does so do the asteroids in the asteroid belt they're all in roughly the same plane as are the comets in the kuiper belt they're all in roughly the same plane so it's kind of i mean not exactly a perfectly smooth plane but a, a kind of puffy plane so it's like a big old donut that goes from about 30 AU, right, 30 Earth-Sun distances to about 50 or or maybe 100, depends on who you ask, and uh, there's stuff out there. Right, there's the, the, the formation of this thing dates back to the formation of the solar system, but then it has evolved over the last four and a half billion years, and parts of it have eroded, and objects have been scattered and put onto new orbits, so you've got different populations of objects that are sort of different overlapping donuts, if you will. The, the other thing about it is a lot of the objects in the Kuiper Belt have more um, eccentric orbits than uh, a lot of the more circular orbits of the planets and the asteroid belt, for instance. So things tend to be on not perfect circles as much when they're out there. Um, so if we think about like the fact that Pluto's orbit, right, is the least circular of all of the, the planetary orbits, um, other objects out in the Kuiper Belt tend to have, a lot of them tend to have these eccentric orbits. So they're um, not just that they're weird, but mm -hmm. uh, that they're actually physically less circular. <laughs> and how, how did it get there? Do we have any idea of how the Kuiper Belt formed? It's like, it's a, it's a you know, it's from the beginning of the, I mean, the beginning, not of the universe, of the, uh, of the solar system, right? So it's, the, the planets were built up from lots and lots of smaller bits uh, and the asteroid, for example, is kind of a, a failed planet in between Mars and Jupiter. And the, the Kuiper Belt is the remains of failed planets outside the orbit of Neptune. They, there wasn't quite enough stuff there, uh, and it was too disrupted to form into planets. But there's still the leftover, we call them planetesimals, right? Little bits of uh, solid stuff anywhere from, you know, little tiny things, centimeter things, to meters and kilometers and hundreds of kilometers, uh, all of those things. Uh, so they, they're, they're remnants from the early solar system, four and a half billion years old. You know, when you get that desk from Ikea and you put it all together and at the end you've got like these pegs and hinges and 18 <laughs> screws and three little sockets. Those are those leftovers. 
that's kind of like what the things in the Kuiper belt are for parents. I usually throw huh. those away before my wife realizes I have extra parts. So, <laughs> so they're, they're the extra Lego parts. Kits a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> the, so the Kuiper belt is the extra parts of the Ikea set that is our solar system. I like yes, that. Yes, it's one, one set of the extra parts, right. Now, we've got a spacecraft actually exploring the Kuiper belts, right? New Horizon uh, made it there. Um, what mm-hmm. have we learned so far about uh, the data that's coming back from this mission? Yeah, it's a pretty interesting place. So, yes, yeah, so the New Horizons first flew by Pluto. Um, and then after it had done that, they identified another object that was within the Kuiper belt. Um, that's now, we now call it Arakoth. Um, that's another one of these sort of icy small bodies. Um, and the imaging of Arakoth was super amazing uh, to us because, so it showed this sort of small body, but it had a really weird shape where like two things stuck together. And a lot of the work that Josh and I do, for instance, is looking at really low speed collisions of things and how you can get things sticking together and bouncing off each other. So for me, for instance, that was super amazing to see something that was probably from the early solar system that had sort of gently come together and maybe stuck together or something like that. And you have this old remnant feature um, that still shows how these processes maybe happened early in the solar system. Unfortunately, right, as it was flying between um, Pluto and Arakoth, they didn't really pass by anything else close enough to do up-close imaging. Um, but there's been some talk about it maybe looking at something else, but even out in the Kuiper Belt, right, things are really, really far apart from each other. So it's very hard for it to Space get to another object. It's freaking huge is the trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not like you're flying through one of these Star Wars asteroid fields or something like that it's it takes years and years to get from one thing to another thing and you have to be precisely headed towards it um but uh so 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 i don't know if it has i don't think new horizons is going to visit any other things that we're aware of we've seen two things and it's actually interesting we've only positively known that the kuiper belt is there since like the 1990s pluto has we've known about pluto for of course a very long time but the next object other than pluto and its moon Charon that we saw in the Kuiper Belt was only found in the 1990s because these things, it's very far away. These things are very small. In some sense, kind of a new, not entirely new discovery, but fairly new discovery. It's kind of cool. And it goes to show just how incredible these spacecraft missions are if New Horizons was able to pinpoint this and and get to it when it's so far away and so small, right? So they had to use Hubble to find it because uh, to, to find a target that was sort of roughly in the direction the New Horizons was going. So they really looked uh, very, very hard to find something in the path of New Horizons and found some potential objects. And this thing is not very big. It's uh, you know, a few kilometers across, and it is you know something like 40 times farther away from the sun than the Earth is, and it's dark. And they flew by it exquisitely closely and got amazing high-resolution, in-focus, properly exposed images. I mean, it is quite the, the engineering Amazing. technological achievement. I mean, we've missed Mars, right? In, in trying to get a spacecraft <laughs> to Mars or, or Venus, right? So like the fact that we could get the spacecraft and doing a flyby and, and getting these amazing images of two objects out on the Kuiper Belt is pretty impressive. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you have a question for our panel of experts, send us an email. You can do that by reaching out. Are we there yet? At WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. 
Support for Are We There Yet comes from listeners just like you, and you can help this show and the local journalism you rely on each and every day by making a donation at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.